0: In today's episode, we open our Bibles to Exodus 21, verse 33, through 22, verse 15. In this section, God's laws and statutes now involve the issue of property rights and restitution. It shows that God is not only concerned about the spiritual welfare of His people, but how they deal with one another. These verses are also important for demonstrating that, while all things are from God, having possessions and the concept of private property— is not foreign to the bible good morning today is thursday december 8th and you're listening to thy strong word this is the program where every weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures through which god bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith i'm your host pastor phil boo of st john lutheran church in laverne minnesota before we begin i'd like to thank our underwriter the lutheran heritage foundation Learn more about their translating and publishing work at lhfmissions.org. Well, folks, join me this morning and uh, welcoming our guest. He's going to help us better understand our text, and this is the Reverend Stephen Tice, pastor of Emmanuel Lutheran Church in New Wells, Missouri. Pastor Tice, good morning and welcome back to the program. Good
1: morning, sir. It is a pleasure to be with you and slowly wandering down the road, working our way through Advent as we get. Closer to the celebration of the birth of our Savior. You know, the uh, thing that I always try to help people focus on is is that Christ is coming again as well. And of course, in Advent, we do both foci at the same time, where we're looking to Christmas, but we're also looking to the end of the age. And what we're looking at today from, from Exodus 22 is even before Jesus came the first time, God was laying out guidelines for people. And we'll talk about that in. Obviously, greater detail, but the season of, of Advent for me is always a memory of, of childhood because we would light the Advent wreath every son, every evening at family devotions. And there was always this, whose turn is it to light them tonight? And I get to blow them out, uh, which, you know, little kids focus on the immediate yeah. activity of the Advent wreath and sort of miss the big picture of the Advent season. But as, as an adult, I recognize that it prepared me to really focus on waiting for the big day. And that's important for us as Christians, as adults, too.
0: Yeah, I love the dual nature of Advent. As you said, we look forward to the end of time. We look backward toward when Christ first came. And, of course, Christ continues to come to us in the Word and sacrament. So there is a continual coming that we get to celebrate all year long, but especially right now during Advent. Yeah, so it's December 8th. It won't be long before Christmas will take over. Of course, for the world, Christmas has already taken over, right? But for us Christians who properly wait, we get to then celebrate it kind of by ourselves. While the rest of the world has moved on, we get to celebrate Christmas uh, all to ourselves. Yes,
1: yeah. and, and I think this uh, the song, The 12 Days of Christmas, that many people associate with the Christmas season is one of those actual foci. I focuses back to the fact that The church for years has celebrated Christmas, days 1 through 12, culminating in epiphany. So we we can and do still celebrate Christmas after the rest of the world takes down all the decorations and starts putting up the uh, Valentine stuff on December 25th in the afternoon. (laughs) Oh, well.
0: Yes. Well, I tell you what, we do have a lot to cover today, but let's go ahead and start off by (coughs) some prayer, if you'll lead us in that, please.
1: In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, good and gracious God, you have revealed yourself to us as as one God and yet three persons beyond our comprehension, beyond our ability even to describe, we can only proclaim it. And as we do that, we remember that when you came to Moses, you called him to be one who would shepherd your people, to lead them out in a time of great distress when they cried to you around the world your people are also in great distress at different times and different places you have sent us the great good shepherd that true high priest jesus who redeems us from death and gives us life we ask that you continue to send your spirit upon us your people and on pastors especially in the advent season where life becomes hectic and people even easily become distracted by the the routines and the preparation for the Christmas observance as a social or family event. Help us to be able to refresh people and help them slow down and listen to your word and point them to the gift of the Savior who came to lead us into the land of promise where we will be your people and live in your house forever. Until Jesus comes again, give healing and strength to those in need, patience and joy to those who proclaim the good news that our Savior comes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
0: Amen. Well, brother, uh, before we read our text for today, how would you like to set the stage? Because we're right here in this section of uh, disjointed—in some ways, they're they're connected by themes a little bit— but this disjointed giving of statutes and laws, we just dealt with things like slavery— Uh, We dealt with things like the death penalty. Uh, Now we're into property rights, and we're going to come back. Give us, give us an understanding of kind of where this section fits in overall. Certainly,
1: what's going on here? You and I forget this because we stand centuries, millennia down the road from this. The Israelites have never had a land. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were nomads. They didn't own anything but a burial site. They had flocks and herds. They had livestock. And they lived in tents until Joseph became a a leader in Egypt. Then they moved down there, but they still lived out in the Nile Delta, land of Goshen, and they kept their herds and flocks there in the agricultural zone. And then they became slaves. So they've never governed themselves as a nation. They've never had a legal system during their lifetime other than the Egyptian legal system imposed on them. So what God is doing for them is he is preparing them while they're in the wilderness for the life that is to come when they enter the land of Canaan. Now, some of these things, the, particularly the sheep, the, the oxen, the, the, the flocks and herds, that'll apply in the wilderness too, because there they have these things. When it comes to the vineyards and the and the produce from the ground, that, that's not wilderness stuff. That's This is for decades down the road. And God is actually saying, I'm giving you rules now, that you won't use for another 30, 40 years, but you need to have them so that when you get where I'm taking you, you know how to deal with it. And this is another way of God saying, I am faithful. You can trust me. You may not see it now, but I'm giving you the rules ahead of time so that by the time you enter the land of promise, everybody will know, and to be blunt, no one will be without excuse about how you deal with these things when they come up. And I think we overlooked the fact that this is decades down the road, to the people he's talking to.
0: Yeah, I think that is an extremely good point and, and one that really hasn't come to the surface yet in our discussion of these issues. And you're right, you know, being so far removed, I don't think often about the reality that they are a nomadic people. I mean, naturally, we think about the traveling through the wilderness and the wandering that God's taking them through as he's bringing them to the promised land, but this is, this is par for the course for them in many ways. They, that's, this is the life they know, except for the 400 years they spend in right. Egypt.
1: Right. This is, this is all they've experienced. And, and even in Egypt, they weren't landowners. They were resident aliens, if you will. They were guests um, of the <laughs> pharaoh to begin with. And then there arose a Rosa pharaoh who knew not Joseph. And then they shifted to be slaves. So the, this is all different for this generation completely.
0: Wow. You know, and when we discussed or have discussed uh, several episodes ago about their grumbling in the Mm -hmm. wilderness, you know, we always have to take a step back and not be so judgmental because, A, they're really just a mirror of the grumbling that we do and the lack of trust Mm -hmm. that we often have in our Lord to provide. But as you point out, this is new to them. I mean, yeah, they're dramatic. Like, where are the flesh pots of Egypt? But at the same time, this is really new and and you know even though you're a slave you were taken care of to a certain extent and so to just have this dramatic shift in the way that they live is well it's it's literally paradigm shift it's it's life altering and so it makes sense that god's going to give them these rules and regulations on how to deal with each other because they've never had to worry about that before yeah this
1: is again new experience new situation and god god is providing for them the awareness that he knows what their situation will be. And even as they're in the wilderness, what their situation is. But these these rules are are aimed down the road long-term. And the, the, the clear indication is that each person is responsible for something God gives them. And God does not authorize us to change that on our own whim. It has to be handled according to proper procedures. And I'll use the word legal legal process, but even more specifically, responsible to others for how we behave. And that's tied up in these rules. Well,
0: I'll tell you what, why don't we head into some of these rules and laws and regulations? Now, ordinarily, when we're dealing with narratives, I like to read, you know, large chunks of the text at a time so that we can get an overall context. Because they're a little bit disjointed, I think I'm just going to try to read section by section, a little smaller sections, if that's all right with you. And and we're going to go ahead and begin with verses uh, 33 through, let's just say 33 and 34, the first two. Here we go. When a man opens a pit or when a man digs a pit and does not cover it and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restoration. He shall give money to its owner, and the dead beast shall be his. Now, it goes on to talk about beast a little bit more, but let's just stop there. Take that really small section, and it, it seems interesting that, you know, God is, is kind of in the, in the minutiae here. This is a very specific situation, and yet we find it here in Scripture.
1: Well, there, there are a couple of things going on here. Where I live, we have a, a goodly number of, of sinkholes. We live in a, a land formation that's called karst, K-A-R-S-T, which means uh, the, the ground's surface is underlain with limestone layers. Now, those will wash out and erode out. If the water table changes or something might come in a heavy downpour and wash away some, some limestone, uh, sandstone subsurface, it'll collapse. Now, those are naturally occurring things, and you know you know where they are sometimes ahead of time, but I remember several years ago down in Florida, one opened up and part of a street fell in, cars were there. But what we're talking about here is a pit that's either known to be a pit or a man digs a new one. Now, if you're out in the desert with several hundred thousand people, one of the things you're going to do is dig a pit latrine, or to put in other words, uh, a rude outhouse. And when you do that, you're you're doing it for the purpose of sanitation. Now, once they enter the land of Canaan, those pits won't be the same thing anymore. They might be storage pits, it could be an old cistern, a variety of different things, that either you opened up an existing one to make use of it, or you dug a new one. Either way, it's a deliberate effort and and plan to make an opening in the ground and you know you're making the opening. It's not like you accidentally left the door open, you dug a hole or you opened what's already there. And so the the, the deliberate planning ahead, uh, we use the the word um, negligence in our legal system. And that's what's implied here. By not covering the pit after you dug it or when you opened it up again for use when you previously had dug it, you're being negligent. And you, you become responsible to others for being irresponsible. And what's going on is a very simple reality that a person who digs the pits, the one who knows where it is, they're the one that has to make sure it's either marked or covered. Uh, I know we have occasionally along our county roads places where the, the uh, side of the road starts to erode and wash out. The is not responsible for those roads, the county is. But what we as landowners do is we put up uh, stakes with either red flags or reflective um, plastic reflective discs on them so people driving along know where the hole is and, and if we don't mark them for each other people will literally fall off the road so this is the kind of thing where God's saying you are accountable to be careful for one another love your neighbors yourself you know the the passage in, in Romans mm. that love love does no wrong to a neighbor this this is really part of that this is just part of keeping the second commandment and in doing so God's being very specific to say the guy who does the digging is the one who has to make sure others are safe and that that's that's just good, I'll use the word common sense, but it's also in a positive statement of, of God's way of loving your neighbor. And it's like Luther's um, explanations to the commandments, we should fear and love God so that we don't do X, but we do Y. And here the statement is, when you do this digging, don't let it become a harm to others. Love your neighbors yourself and mark that pit and cover it up. So the, the first one deals with this need to care for other people. Well, what stands
0: out to me, though, too, in addition to the you know avoid negligence, that sort of thing, it says that the owner of the pit shall make restoration, which makes sense. He shall give money to its owner, which makes sense. But then the dead beast shall be his. So the, in this restoration, it's almost like the, the compulsion is that God says you now have to buy this animal from the person. Whereas perhaps in our system, it would be like, well, I want to keep my dead animal. I also want to sue you for your negligence. And also I have some pain and suffering, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It seems like God's system is a lot more equitable between the two I parties. Think,
1: I think you've hit on the key issue here. God is saying, this is not for you to get ahead. This is for you guys to stay in the condition that I've placed you. When they enter the land of Canaan and the land is divided and they're told not to move the land markers. It's because God gave the land to start with. And this particular section points ahead to that idea that you you pay for the dead animal, but you get to keep it now. The person you're paying has the money. They can go out and buy another one if they want. And you, well, you now have have a hide you can process or meat you can deal with. So you, you lost the cash, but you got some value. And maybe you learned a lesson. But again, like you point out, God is, is in, today's, keeping in, it even. in today's
0: legal language. You know, we talk about being made whole. Yeah.
1: Well, you know what? Let's go on because we still
0: have some of this negligence idea in the next couple of verses. When one man's ox butts another's so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and share its price and the dead beast. They shall also share or if it is known that the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has not kept it in, he shall repay ox for ox, and the dead beast shall be his. So again, very similar situation, isn't it, Pastor? A little bit of more nuance, though. Well,
1: this one has the idea that animals acting like animals, you're just accountable to repair, replace what was destroyed. And if it's purely accidental, you know, you, you just— you share the live box by selling it, now you got the cash, and then you split the dead animal up. You both lost something in that an animal died, but you both get something because it's just accident, that's the way animals are. My wife and I own two dogs. Now our dogs are very gentle and friendly. They will jump up on people to lick them if they can and knock them over, so we're, we're responsible for not letting that happen. But if you have a dog, for instance, that's known to attack, and you don't restrain it, you get criminal charges brought against you. That's sort of the same thing here. If it's known the ox has been accustomed to gore, and the owner hasn't kept it in its place, then he gives a live ox and gets the dead one. He still gets an ox, but his ox has only one real function. And it's you're accountable, I am accountable, you and I need to be responsible. And again, it's God keeping a balance so that one person doesn't come out really benefit and the other one's severely impaired but you still have the accountability factor I think again like I said they were slaves in, in Egypt for hundreds of years we don't know how many and and now they're they're going out in the wilderness where they will have livestock again so during that time in the, in the wilderness if you're if you got an ox that gores and you haven't restrained it it's gonna damage perhaps more than just other oxen, it could damage the tents, it could destroy people's property, it could hurt other people. And this is, again, God saying, I've placed an order in the world and sin broke the order. You can't stop all of that, but what you can stop, you're accountable to stop. And this puts us back in that category, as I said before, loving one another, but also being part of God's design and plan to keep the world operating correctly all the way back to Genesis where he says have authority over the earth subdue it well if you've got a an ox that's been known to gore you subdue it you don't let the ox do whatever it wants if you don't know what it's going to do cuz it's just the first time it's ever happened cuz it's an animal and you know it reacted well okay now let's let's get everybody evenly compensated but if if you knew and didn't do anything you don't get the same level of response the other person got you get something but you didn't do your job.
0: So far, the the regulations that God has put forth has dealt with uh, equity and um, making everybody whole in terms of you know keeping them where they have been put, as you pointed out. Uh, issues also the possibility of a penal punishment, and that's what we see in the next four verses, uh, starting with chapter twenty-two, verses one through four. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay if he has nothing then he shall be sold for his theft if the stolen beast is found alive in his possession whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep he shall pay double so in these cases we see that there is a penalty to to doing something on purpose that's wrong not just a more and more than just negligence
1: yeah. and and it's again it goes back to uh, i'm reminded of the book of Deuteronomy when i read these words where god clearly says i am the one giving you these things I am the one that determines you'll have this plot of land, you'll live here. I continually bless you with these multiple gifts. Be sure you treat them as gifts from me and then share them with others. And what's going on here is if a person is stealing, what they're saying is God's made a mistake. I'll correct the mistake. I'll take away what God gave. And so the punitive part of it, repay. If he kills it or sells it, repay five, for, five oxen for an ox or four sheep for a sheep, you've interfered with a person's livelihood, perhaps their job, um, maybe the food that they were raising or they were going to sell it to feed their family or buy some clothing, although in the wilderness clothing doesn't wear out, but down the, lo- down the road when they're in, in Canaan, that'll matter. And so the, the restoration takes place, a restitution, but it's also, as you said, punitive. It's a punishment and i think we need to remember that that it's not it's not revenge it's punishment you did evil god punishes evil so that we learn not to do it again and you know sometimes without wandering too far into the weeds here our legal system gets wrapped up in misunderstanding that discipline includes punishment and punishment is not always revenge or exacting a price because you're mad at someone if you're mad at someone, it's really not it's really not discipline that's meted out. But when you're simply doing what's proper to train or teach them, it's good. I think it's it's very important to, to look at if this person breaks in and is struck down, so they, he dies at nighttime, you couldn't tell. Maybe they were coming to, to kill you. And so self-defense theory is one of our current issues in, in legal uh, discussion in the United States. When a person feels threatened to that their life is in danger, they are authorized to use deadly force to protect themselves. That's really applied, implied here, at least. It's dark outside. It's nighttime. You can't see. Remember, no electric lights. If you extinguish the lamp before you went to bed, there's nothing to light up quickly. It's not like you flick a switch and you can see. So if you if you kill the person in the nighttime, there's no blood guilt because you didn't know. But then that very key next phrase, if it happened in the daylight, if the sun has risen, and you killed somebody breaking in who was a thief. Then you have blood guilt. Now you are accountable for that man being dead. And I think it's um, it's key to understand here that God God says life matters. Uh, chapter twenty one dealt with that uh, in in detail, and later on in chapter twenty two it'll come back up again. But but the whole idea that you you have a life that has to be accounted for, and the accounting was we didn't know any better, therefore we are not accountable for the death brought on by this person's misdeed. But if it's daylight, then you're accountable because you do know better. And if, if the person kills during daylight, even the guy's a thief, you won't blood guilt, whatever the blood guilt is. And it can be determined by the family, it can be set by the judge down the road in the land of Israel later. Or if the person has no money, he himself is sold into slavery and payment is made to the family. Now notice this comes after the section that in chapter 21 talked about slavery, how slavery is determined. Now that slavery has been established, it can actually be implied as an imposed punishment. Until God regulated slavery, the punishment wasn't available, but now it is. And then the thing that's interesting to me, if, if the animal he stole is found alive in his possession, ox or sheep or donkey, he just pays double. He, there's still a punitive issue here. There's still a punishment, but the punishment's reduced because the animal that was taken was alive. So you're just paid, you're giving back what you take, and then you're punished by providing another one of the same thing. Totally different from if it's already dead, now, you, now you're five times payment for an ox, four for a sheep. But if it's brought back alive, just a double payment. And And so there's a clear indication that you destroying something removes it from the cap, the category of human correction is possible. If you haven't destroyed it, the correction of returning, it's possible. And there's still punishment, but, but you've, uh, for lack of a better label, you've avoided the harsher penalty because you didn't destroy something that wasn't yours. You merely took it. So there's, there's a level at which, um, uh, the irrevocable nature of destroying something or selling it to someone else and it's gone brings a harsher penalty because you exercised another level of violation of of authority by engaging in selling or killing. That's only allowed to an owner. Taking it's bad enough. Then acting as if you are the owner, that brings greater punishment. And I'm thinking of things that happen in our Country Today, when you talk about uh, financial fraud, we recently heard about the collapse of one of the crypto funds and the the fraud involved there that was deliberate and intentional, which is a little bit different than, you know, you had a computer glitch and you hit the wrong key and suddenly everything blows up uh, in, in a processor. This is you deliberately did it. Here's the same thing. You deliberately took it and then sold it or killed it, knowing it wasn't yours. If you took it and it's still alive Your motive was to have something rather than to get it for yourself permanently. What were you gonna do with it? We don't know. Give it back and pay a penalty of an extra animal. So I think there's at least an indication here that God says, I see grades of violation of my created order in the killing of an animal or selling it to someone else. Now you don't control it anymore. As long as it's still in your control, the violation level is real, but it's not as extensive. Now that's my personal statement. That's not a scriptural statement. But the penalty, the penalty implied, says it is handled in a way that says the severity is less. But that's again me interpreting what's. Well, this is
0: where I believe that the two. This is where I believe that we have these two kinds of righteousness really comes in handy for understanding sins, say sins against one another versus our sins against God. Our sins against God, of course, being all equally deserving of damnation. For instance, Jesus talks about how you know uh, being angry with your brother without cause in your heart is as, is as bad as murdering him. So in both cases, the commandment has been broken. Uh, so before God, they're equal. But, of course, your brother would much rather you just be mad at him than murder him. <laughs> so we see these different levels, and God's laws here take that into account. Uh, one thing that I think is interesting also that really stands out, especially in today's environment, is this idea that uh, the thief must pay the victim this predetermined amount or he'll be sold into slavery, and you mentioned the the slavery. And we see back in chapter twenty one, verse two, how a, a Hebrew slave is treated differently. Here is one thing I would, uh, I guess, cause or want people to think about if they were to take exception to this. If they were to say, "Well, this seems so awful in in contrast to the way we uh, condemn slavery today." Well, God, first of all, as we talked about uh, last time, He's not. Saying that slavery is a, a venerable practice, he's dealing with people who live in a real world with, with real activities. On the other hand, my, my first degree, my, my bachelor's degree is in criminal justice, so I have a little bit of a background in this. Um, think about the penal system that we have today, the corrections system as it's now called because we want to focus on correcting people as opposed to punishing them. Is that not really the same thing that's going on here? You're taking someone, you're removing from them their freedom, and they have to do something in which to make up for it, which used to be the case. Prisoners would often be used to restore things or bring things positive back into society, whether it was through uh, through working, you know, making license plates, breaking up rocks on the road. They were doing something that society needed, and they were being forced to by the state. Uh, they were being forced to work as a part of as a result of what they had done. There's really no
1: difference here unless I'm missing that. What do you think Pastor? I think it's very accurate. It is God's way of maintaining what I'm going to call a balance or an order because the thievery or the inability to pay your debt is bringing disorder to an ordered system. And so what you do is you correct the disorder with a a plan that says, "Okay, I owed a debt, I couldn't pay it. I'm sold as a slave for six years, the seventh year I'm free. And this kind of slavery with a time frame on it says, you can't make him a permanent slave, he's paying a debt. The debt can be paid off. You're not now Lord over his life. He's he's making restitution for what he committed to purchase or pay back and didn't. So now you have the, the payment back from his service, but you're not his Lord and master. There are still rules as to how you relate to this person, and in the anytime you get into the biblical exactly. concept of slavery, the problem most people fail to recognize is that it was an economic thing, not a social, not a social thing. The slaves in Egypt, uh, when the Pharaoh made them slaves, that was to avoid an uprising. They were the most powerful land owning unindebted group of people in in Egypt because at the time of Joseph's rulership, the people sold their their livestock, their land, and finally they sold themselves to Pharaoh in order to buy grain during those seven years of famine. The Israelites were provided for because they were part of Joseph's household so that they were free people by the time this new Pharaoh arrives. where's, Where's the power? Where's the danger? It's these people who are not subject to Pharaoh for all their goods and, and livelihood. Now, in this case, with the, the Israelites among themselves, they're all one people. They're all under the same God. They all serve and follow the same rules. So the economic issue is, hey, make restitution. Six years is what you'll end up owing. Seventh year you go free and all debts are cleared and you're not a slave anymore. You're a freed member of the, of the nation of Israel. And our culture misses most of that because of the economic nature of slavery over the past several hundred years, a couple thousand years, actually. Um, We don't see things the way they were at that time, and so we don't understand the terms the way they were used then.
0: Well, I'll tell you what, folks, it's time for a break. But when we come back, Pastor Tice and I will keep going with Exodus chapter 22. We'll see you on the other side. On America's college campuses, doors are open to sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. The number of international students studying at American schools has more than quadrupled over the past decade. For many of these young men and women, it's their first time living in a free society where they can ask questions about Christianity. You can help answer their questions. Go to lhfmissions.org and partner with the Lutheran Heritage Foundation to translate good Lutheran books into languages these students can read and understand. lhfmissions.org. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me today is the Reverend Stephen Tice, pastor of Emanuel Lutheran Church in New Wells, Missouri. Before we dive back into the text, I want to remind you that if you have any questions or comments about today's show, feel free to direct them to me at pastorboo at gmail.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R-B-O-O-E at gmail.com. I'm happy to answer your questions on or off the air. I respond to every email you send me. Now, Pastor Tice, before the break, we were talking about uh, paying your debt to society, uh, which is sort of the modern way of talking about people who are going through the correction system after being convicted for a crime. In this day, they would pay their debt well, quite literally to the person that they offended, either through repayment uh, to make that person whole or even selling themselves or giving their services over to them as uh, an indentured servant or slave in the context of this time. Uh, anything else you want to talk about before we move on with our text? Because we have a few more laws to I get think through.
1: There's something implied here, and I and I don't want to get too far into the U.S. legal system. There's something implied here that I think we we would benefit from, and that's if we insisted that in our society, when a criminal offense occurs, that restitution be part of the you know, applied uh, response. So that the person, rather than being incarcerated, becoming a burden to society as a whole, and in some cases taught how to be even worse than they were before, they would still have freedoms, but responsibility to make restitution. And in the process, they get a better image of themselves as a contributing part of the solution rather than a victim of injustice that may really exist inside a a correctional facility that, you know, bluntly... I've never been a resident. I've visited them. I've never been a resident. But I'm sure that things happen there are reprehensible. I'm sure of that. If we could avoid that by going to a restitution system, we'd benefit our society and the people who go through the legal system. Uh, you talk about, about uh, prison reform being a topic in our communities. This is one way to approach it from a slightly different angle, which is says, don't put them in prison, put them to work. And and let that be the learning process, the the uh, correction, if you will. That's that's a thought I have, and I've had it for decades, by the way. So, <laughs> well,
0: oftentimes, you know, while restitution amounts, you know, in sentencing is given, of course, to the victims to make them whole or more whole, I should say, that person who committed the crime doesn't have the funds, as is indicated even here in the text, to uh, to pay that restitution, and uh, and likewise oftentimes their, their mere court fines will be way over the cost of restitution. And the concept, of course, is that they're paying back also the state. But then naturally, when you get into the thousands and thousands of dollars and someone you know mugged you on the corner, he probably doesn't have thousands and thousands of dollars because otherwise he wouldn't be mugging you. That's sort of the idea. But I definitely like your idea, not to belabor the point. But yeah, there should be something in the system that allows people to, um, I guess for lack of a better word, redeem themselves not every crime is something from which someone can probably redeem themselves but yeah to to make the system a little bit more positive in that sense certainly wouldn't hurt i know that when i was going to school for all this um there were hundreds of theories of all the the perfect ways to run it and of course you know you run into the fact that in a broken world nothing's going to be perfect um but it is it is fascinating to think about it for sure And I like how we see here, even in God's word, um, just sort of the, the foundations for that. And I would suspect that if we were to trace back, say, modern penal systems all the way back or correctional facilities, I should say, all the way back, we could see the connection here. At least the philosophy being laid down by God in terms of people making other people whole for the things they do against them, whether intentionally or unintentionally. And that's where we get to verses five and six. Here's five. If a man causes a field or a vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best in his own field and in his own vineyard. Six, if fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that the stacked grain or the standing grain or the field is consumed, he who started the fire shall make full restitution." So again, just more verses, more laws about restitution, but some specific instances. Which I think, in this manner, it's like case law, more than just laws that say, you know, if you harm somebody, you have to make restitution. You know, God gives us case law; He gives us an example of this is what it looks
1: like. Yeah, and I think this is this is meant to do two simple things, if I can make it that blunt. The first one is to say you're accountable for how you handle your property. But how it affects other people is just as important. You have you have livestock, you have fires. You know the, this issue of who started the forest fires that that uh, have to be put out with public public funds and cost cause hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of dollars worth of damage. You know some of that we've heard of that in our country as well. Here, the the, the simple point is even in the small case, if it it damages your neighbor's field or vineyard so that now his crop is damaged or, or his livelihood or maybe his family's food source, the way that works is he comes to your place and gets the best stuff out of your crops and your vineyard so that he isn't harmed and you still have whatever you've got that's not the best but it's still there so people can continue to function in the environment that God provides. And like I said earlier, they're not gonna have any standing grain or vineyards in the wilderness. This is down the road in the land of promise. So it's it's again, God saying, you're gonna be accountable for these things when you get there. Train your children now in the ways the Lord teaches so that when you arrive, they already have this. And as I mentioned before, these people have lived in, under the Egyptian government and slavery for, for decades. None of them has been a free person except the exception basically of Moses who left town, okay? But um, what God is doing is he's training a generation not yet born with details about how to live as a responsible society where you are accountable for what happens. And I look at our nation today and I'm very distressed by, again, broken human nature being what it is. If the Holy Spirit and the word of God doesn't train us in the right way, we won't find it on our own. And what we see is a culture where people are looking to blame everyone else for what's gone wrong. Not so much that everyone's a victim, but that no one's accountable or responsible. And this section is blunt. If you did it by failure to look out for your neighbor's goods, you're accountable. I like how
0: you've brought out for us the idea that God is looking to not only make people whole when they are harmed, but also, especially in those cases where the harm is unintentional, that that person isn't left destitute. Um, I, and I think about tort law. In our country today, which our country worldwide is pretty famous for the various lawsuits that are generally against these multimillion-dollar corporations. I guess multimillion isn't even a term that sufficiently describes them because they're worth hundreds of millions of dollars. But in any case, what's on the news lately is the woman uh, who is filing a $5 million class action lawsuit against Kraft Heinz Food Company. She's alleging that their product, Velveeta shells and cheese, takes longer than the three and a half minutes to cook than says on the packaging, and therefore that constitutes fraud. It's false and misleading, and therefore she wants a five million dollar settlement. Now that really puts things into perspective. I mean, you have one person who is, you know, harmed tragically by the by the negligence of a company. Then yes, they should be made whole and compensated. But then you have, well, I'm just upset because it took an extra 40 seconds, and it says on the con- – come on. This is – that's not how I, – again, I don't know this woman from anybody, and I don't know what the uh, the result of the case will be. But I'll say in hypotheticals, this is not a behavior that I think God would be pleased with Christians with. This is not how he wants us to live. And
1: I, would, I would agree with you completely. First question I'm going to ask, which will sound silly, but – what power is her microwave? That's right. Well,
0: exactly. There's different <laughs> yeah. microwave power. She's probably running in a 400 watt microwave, and they're they're made for thousand. I think they'll prevail, and they may have already prevailed by the time you guys Google it at home. But uh, we'll see how it goes. But I only bring that up just to show the ridiculousness of say suing companies just because they're extremely wealthy, and what God is laying out here. This restitution is about people who have been harmed or what we say in our legal system today, actual damages. You have actual damages and then you have like emotional damages and then you have punitive damages. know, so punitive is to punish the person actual is, you know what you're literally out of pocket because of. And, and the reason kind of, I, I know these things not only because of my background, but I've uh, I've suffered a, a severe injury and that injury. Well, I had received restitution from the people who were responsible for it. And I remember because of that, I had a motorcycle accident, and because of that, my attorney said, well, you know, I think we could get more if we just sue the person, too, as opposed to their insurance company, and I said, no. I said, that doesn't – no, that's not right. I, I'm I'm satisfied with my bills being paid, et cetera. Um, of course, the attorney, you know, the more he gets, the more – paid he gets but that's not consistent i wasn't thinking about exodus 22 i'll be honest but it didn't seem consistent with what is uh, permissible for a christian to seek money just for the sake of seeking money no it's you know to have my very expensive bills paid is what i'm looking for and and again i'm not putting myself out there or judging anybody that's been in a different position i'm just saying you know what we see here in the text is this equitability which i think is a is really fine.
1: I, I think what you' what you're also hinting at without saying it is that part of the issue here is to restore order where disorder has been brought. If you go back to Genesis 1, the six days of creation is God bringing more order to his creation with each of the passing days until finally everything he has made is good and it was very good and then he ceases from his labor because order is in place. And all of these laws we're reading now are ways in which a disordered world is able to bring back some of the order that was disrupted by the human sin.
0: I like how you bring that up, that order from disorder to order. Our God is a God of order, and he has shown us that so many different times and ways throughout our text in Exodus so far. Um, Let let us move on, though, because there's some more interesting statutes that he puts down. We're going to read verses 7 through 9. If a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep safe, and it is stolen from the man's house, then if the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to God to show whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. For every breach of trust, whether it is for an ox, for a donkey, for a sheep, for a cloak, or for any kind of lost thing, of which one says, this is it, The case of both parties shall come before God. The one whom God condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. This one adds a little bit of a twist to what we've heard so far. People have been left uh, to judge these things for themselves or to, as you said, when the judges came along, to leave it to the leaders and judges. Here we see if you can't find the thief, the owner shall come near to God. Explain what that means.
1: This is a situation where the... The Stuff is missing, and the person who was entrusted with it says, I didn't take it, I don't know what happened. Okay, who does know? Well, God knows all things, and what's done now is neither person is assumed guilty, both are assumed innocent. There's one of the things we, we tend to miss here in scripture there's an assumption of innocence, even though belief in guilt exists. The way you deal with that is you go to God, in which case, normally you would have gone to the priest or a prophet. The priest would have answered with God's response or in some way not defined here, the two people who are saying this happened, they're both saying it happened. One says, it's gone, somebody took it. The other one, the the man who had it in his custody says, I didn't take it, I don't know what happened to it. There's gotta be an arbiter, if you will, a third party. God will be the third party. How exactly that's carried out, We're not told here. Elsewhere, we know that they brought things to the judge or they brought things to the king. At this point in the wilderness, they would have brought it to the the captains of the hundreds or the the head of the clan or whatever leadership system God set up under uh, Moses and and the leadership of Israel. Because that was part of the issue. These things were wearing him out. And his father-in-law says, well, you dummy, appoint some substitutes in your place to deal with the smaller details. And if they can't solve it, they'll bring it to you and then you take it to God. So that system's in place with the Israelites in the wilderness, that ultimately the answer is gonna come from God in the order God put together. But here's the key. There's an assumption of innocence on both parts because both claim to be innocent or both say something's wrong, we don't know what happened. God will help us find the answer. And that's that's really, I think, as you point out, the key. It's that new element that God is the actual answer giver. Well, that would be difficult to implement in our modern
0: system, would it not? You know, but we we see it in some ways in the New Testament, right? Christians don't be bringing each other to court. Settle amongst yourselves. We we see this. We see even the use of things like casting lots to determine. God's will—not something we necessarily do today—but we can certainly go to God's Word, put ourselves under the authority of Scripture to help us discern and determine. Bring in uh, neutral third parties to help us decide our disputes. Uh, We we aren't to we're we're to settle it between ourselves. You know, on the way we we shouldn't treat each other. Like the world lives. We should live as the way God calls us to live. So even then, even in those cases, we're, we're letting God decide when we let his will reign over yeah. us, right?
1: And, and, and this is the whole idea that I don't need to get justice for myself. I will bring it before the Lord, and he will bring justice. And you know, Vengeance is mine. God says, I will repay. You be patient and let me do it. And I'll care for you in the meantime. And my problem is always being patient. Let God do it section.
0: (laughs) Right. Well, we have yet another section. This is another long one. This is going to be 10 through 13. And we're almost to the end of our, our time together or our section, I should say. Here we go. If a man gives to his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any beast to keep safe and it dies or is injured or is driven away. Without anyone seeing it, an oath by Yahweh shall be between them both to see whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. The owner shall accept the oath and he shall not make restitution. But if it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to its owner. If it is torn by beasts, let him bring it as evidence. He shall not make restitution for what has been torn. Now, this is fascinating because... There is a little bit of a if someone is willing to take a pledge, an oath by Yahweh, then then they're to be believed, right, without question. Um, and if your defense is that another beast did it and it wasn't your fault, well, then prove it, and then fine, you are off the hook. But but still, I think that adding an oath by the
1: Lord that's that's the new thing here. Interesting, yeah, and, and this is the the uh, the statement with the giving of the law that that uh, Moses shares and we find it written here in in the the books of Moses when God gives the law he says I am Yahweh your God this is what you shall do this is what you shall not do and the statement again is why won't you do this because I am Yahweh your God and so when you take an oath by the name of Yahweh you shall not swear by heaven you know it's God's throne you shall not swear by the earth it's God's footstool your oath must be in that which is eternal and so the 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 basic statement here is, literally, when we take an oath, we're saying, I swear by God's name that this is true. And if it's not true, may God punish me. I'm not worried about you punishing me. I'm saying God will see what's right. And to ask God to judge me is a frightful thing. And so this, this level of
0: Right. Yeah. More frightful than people oh, yeah, realize. Yeah. More frightful than people understand. Yeah. I mean, you have these people who are like, well, you know, only God can judge me. And it's like, yeah, you know, he's going to, though. Right. I mean, that's, that's a scary thing. If you are, if you are living outside of God's will and you don't want to take correction or influence from Christians, you say they're judgmental. Oh, only God will judge me. Yeah. That's, that's not something you want, right? We want God's judgment to have been executed out in Christ. That's the, that's the joy. That's where we yeah. find hope.
1: And this, this uh, the issue of something's been stolen, then then you are accountable for it. But if it's gone and nobody saw what happened and you can't prove it, and if it was, you do discover it was killed by a, another animal that's ripped apart and destroyed, then you're not accountable for that either because that's animal behavior that's normal. So I'm not accountable for what a wild, wild uh, dog does. Or in the community I live in, bobcats, uh, coyotes—you know—they'll they'll destroy or take chickens. Um, young livestock are in danger from coyotes. Adults aren't. But you know, this—if if my neighbors, our neighbors are cattle um, dairy farmers, and they have some of their her- their younger cattle, they're not yet giving milk in pastures that adjoin our property and to access our uh, their property. They can't get there from uh, where their buildings are because of an old creek and the several farms purchased over the years. So they actually bring their livestock through our property through a gate that uh, adjoins their land. and And we just have a simple agreement that they can bring their livestock in and out when they need to. Now, if something happens to that cow when it's on my property and they're moving it, that's not my fault. But if I'm going to keep the cows and keep them on my property and say, I'll watch them for you, leave them here. Now I've got a different level of accountability. And that's part of what's going on here is if I said I would keep it for you, I'm, I'm accountable for where it went unless somebody came and stole it, in which case I'm not accountable for that. If it was destroyed by an animal, that's, that's not my deal either. But if, if somebody stole it, then I do have to pay you because I was going to watch it for you. But if nobody saw it happen and I say I didn't do it, then we we go from there.
0: Two more verses, and we'll be at the end of our section. And these also have a little bit to do with negligence. It adds one little caveat to it, which is different. And here we go, 14 and 15. If a man borrows anything of his neighbor and it is injured or dies, the owner not being with it, he shall make full restitution. If the owner was with it, he shall not make restitution. And if it was hired, it came for its hiring fee. Fascinating here because of the hiring fee part. That's what stands out to me. Um, If I'm reading this correctly, and please correct me if I'm wrong, it's almost as if if you you hire out an animal – And something happens to it the fact that you have hired it out that's sufficient for the restitution maybe i'm misreading that how do you see this this
1: is if you notice carefully the phrase if you borrow it from your neighbor and your neighbors there and it breaks you're not accountable for it either the presence of the owner implies the owner is still looking out for his property and the hiring it out says i have for a fee said i'm still accountable for this while you're using it and if you are using it and it breaks and i rented it from you, well, then you already got the rental fee. I don't have to make restitution. You got a rental fee. Uh, It's it's basically, I'm going to say this in a kind of of suspicious way. If I know there's something faulty with this animal or this tool, and I rent it out to somebody so that it breaks in their possession, and now I can get it fully replaced at no cost, I'm deceitfully cheating somebody. This prevents that from happening. Mm. I guess in
0: a modern sense, well, I was going to say in a modern sense, I would add this: that you, uh, you are taking. Hmm. Think about like renting a car. So if you rent a car, obviously they have insurance on their cars, and they have worked into the price of the hiring the risk that something on the car might be damaged. And so, in a more primitive way, you know, you are if 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 it's so valuable to you. Then you need to work out that I'm willing to risk it being damaged for this fee. You do that beforehand, not after. And it also prevents fraud, as you described, too. Yeah, it makes sense. I just think it's great when we look through these things and there's so many connections to our modern day laws and legal systems as we have brought out, as you brought out. And that's not a mistake. This is part of the natural law that's written on our heart. It's a part of the philosophies where the laws of the Judeo and Christian tradition has been interwoven in Western society. So if these things sound familiar, as the pastor and I have gone through them, folks, that's because they they undergird the way our legal system is today because this is how God has designed life for us to be.
1: And I think you've you've highlighted something vitally important is to recognize that over the centuries, those who know the word of God have seen that God knows enough about human nature that what he prepares deals with all eventualities. It doesn't deal with all specifics, but it puts us in that, you used the term case law earlier, in that status where we can say, this reflects how human nature is. How do we plan ahead to anticipate the challenges of human nature? Because all of us are fallen sinners. And if you and I talked about the righteousness of Christ, and you talked about two kinds of righteousness earlier, we stand before God through Christ alone, covered with the blood of the lamb. In in our relationship with our neighbors, there it's, it's under the laws that human beings put in place, but with this, Law of God written on our hearts. It's all is there. Everyone knows that right and wrong exist. We reach the standard of saying, here's how right and wrong will be administered. Let's do this in a way that keeps order in our society. And that, again, reflects the nature of the God who made us. And his desire is that he'll restore all things under Christ Jesus when he comes at the end of the age, back to our Advent theme. So then all order will be correctly in place. Until then, we proclaim forgiveness and peace in Christ because. That brings us the hope of order in our own lives through God's grace and order for others by the proclamation of Christ.
0: Excellent, wonderful. And thank you, brother, for bringing order to our discussion today of all of these different laws. I tell you what, we're at the end of our time. But we will be back tomorrow, folks. We're going to be continuing to talk about, well, more laws of God, this time dealing with with the concept of social justice. Perhaps not social justice as it's defined today, but God's concern for his people and for upholding justice among them. Join us tomorrow for a lively discussion. Well, I'd like to thank my guest, the Reverend Stephen Tice, pastor of Emmanuel Lutheran Church in New Wells, Missouri. Thanks, pastor, for being on the show. Thank you.
1: God's blessings with you. Until
0: then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray. Father, keep us in thy strong word. (laughs) Bye. <laughs>